welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It's a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, he twists himself into a Waltman loop to make himself (laughs) available for these. It's my co-host Frank Gaylard. I've always uh, thought myself more of a Simmons loop kind of person rather than a Waltman's loop. Well done, mate. You know your names of eponymous vascular catheters and techniques. (laughs) During your ill-fated stint as an interventional radiologist, did you come up with any novel techniques or catheters, Gaylord? Not unless you think dissecting a femoral artery or deploying stents in the wrong place is a novel technique. (laughs) (laughs) So today's episode, Gaylord, is an interventional radiology episode. It's a a readful episode. And among other things, uh, our listeners might learn what a Waltman loop is, if they don't already know that one. Uh, So the topic for the readful is UAE, not the country. It's not a geopolitical podcast that we've turned into. (laughs) So UAE is uterine artery embolisation in this context. So one of my colleagues at the Alfred Hospital here in Melbourne, Matt Lukies, uh, he'll be playing the role of the reader for this one. And he'll be joined by podcast regular Heather Moriarty. Ah, excellent. Good, good. Yeah, so Matt made the mistake of mentioning the podcast to me one too many times at work. So I pulled the old, oh, it sounds like you should host a main segment for us, Matt. And so uh, here we are now. I'm going to have to try and do that. Maybe just go up to a random person on the street, just next to the bank and say, hello, hello, would you like to read? A- I've got a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can't hurt. I mean, compared to the usual effort you put in for these podcasts, mate. <laughs> <laughs> There is only so many hours in each day, Dixon. You're lucky I turn up. I mean, I've got to keep up with all my meat-related story research and writing down goats. You know, I'm a busy man. Oh, yeah. It must be so tough for you. (laughs) We might need to go into uh, podcast couples counselling or something (laughs) to keep this on the road. Now, before we get into the readful, I have a quick bit of follow-up from our last episode. Frank, can you remember what the last episode was about? Uh, Spleens. Yes, splenic biopsies. So it turns out that at the same time as we released the last episode, a new paper on the complications of percutaneous splenic core biopsies was also being published. So in the January issue of Radiology, uh, the title is A Multi-Center Study of Needle Size and Safety for Splenic Biopsy. And it confirmed really what we were talking about, and that is that, you know, 18-gauge core biopsy of the spleen is relatively safe. They had an overall bleeding rate of about 8%. And only 2% of those required treatment. And often uh, even a larger gauge than 18 was used with similar outcomes. Interesting, one little interesting fact, patients with bleeding had smaller lesions compared with patients without bleeding. So the Hmm. smaller the lesion, the more likely you are to bleed. Maybe they're harder to get, so there's more fatsing about. Yeah, that's true. Or maybe the spleen itself is the thing that bleeds rather than the Mm. lesion, and therefore you're more likely to take more tissue from the spleen itself. I don't know. So you call this coincidence that they came out at the same time, but I think this is more that the power of the podcast is growing. (laughs) And now all we need to do is mention a topic and radiology scampers to quickly publish something in response. I think that's that's far more likely. Yep. (laughs) Well, I reckon we should just get straight into the main segment for this one, Gaylord, because it's not not a short one. So this is interventional radiologists Matt Lukies and Heather Moriarty reading and discussing the Radiopedia article on uterine artery embolization. So we'll listen in and then Frank, you and I will be back for a chat in the outro. Excellent. Excellent. 
This is the first time I've been on the Radiopedia Reading Room podcast. I might have prepared the wrong content because I thought this was a podcast about tea leaves and palmistry, but we're actually going to talk today about uterine artery embolization. And joining me from Cork Island, it's interventional radiologist Heather Moriarty. Thanks for being here, Heather. Hey, Matt. Nice to chat with you. Thanks for hosting. I think the host has to do all the heavy lifting on the Readful episodes. You actually have to read the article. I'm just here as the audience. Yes, yes. And you've been on the podcast before. And also, you were a consultant when I was a fellow at the Alfred. So it's great to be chatting with you today. Some of the lessons that you've taught me, I still use daily in my practice. So it's great to speak to you again. (laughs) That's good to hear. It's a readful episode. So the format is I'm going to read through the article and then you'll provide your thoughts and insights and we'll have a bit of a discussion about it. So let's get straight into it. The article is uterine artery embolization. So the introduction, uterine artery embolization is an interventional radiological technique to decrease the arterial supply to the uterus and is performed for a variety of reasons. History. Uterine artery embolization has been practiced for more than 20 years for controlling hemorrhage. The technique was first reported as an effective intervention for fibroids in 1995 when Ravina et al. noted that several women with symptomatic leiomyomata or fibroids who underwent uterine artery embolization as a pre-hysterectomy treatment had significant clinical improvement to an extent that hysterectomy was no longer required. It is now estimated that more than 100,000 UAE procedures have been performed for the treatment of fibroids. Yeah, that's right. I suppose when we think about uterine artery embolization or UAE these days, it's most often in the context of fibroids. And like many discoveries in medicine, it seems to be a lucky happenstance that the benefit of embolization was discovered. I think it was published in The Lancet in 1995. But now it's commonplace as a standalone treatment, particularly for fibroids, but also for some other indications. Speaking of the indications, let's get straight into it. So the indications in the article, first up, we have uterine fibroids, no surprise there. Uh, That's intramural submucosal or subserosal location. And the clinical uh, symptoms, amenorrhagia, pelvic pain or pressure slash fullness, mass effect symptoms such as urinary frequency, bladder outlet obstruction, hydronephrosis, fibroids with otherwise undiagnosed infertility, and also as a preoperative technique to decrease the size of large fibroids. Separate indication, there is dysfunctional uterine bleeding, adenomyosis, postpartum hemorrhage, and in the less common indications, we have uterine artery pseudoaneurysms, uterine AV malformations, and if there is extravasation of contrast detected during angiography for other reasons such as post-trauma. Going on from that, patients with fibroids and their related problems probably present the largest group who is most able to benefit from uterine artery embolization. Presently, people with multiple and or large symptomatic uterine fibroids traditionally undergo total abdominal, vaginal, or laparoscopic assisted hysterectomies around the world. The figure in the United States is about 60,000 hysterectomies per year. In less developed and more populous countries like India, the numbers may be even higher. There is an increasing need for minimally invasive alternatives for uterine fibroids and dysfunctional bleeding. Fibroids are certainly the most common indication that we do uterine artery embolization for. As we know, fibroids are benign. They're neoplasms, but they're benign and they occur in quite a large proportion of women. So about 40% of premenopausal women. 
And between a quarter and a half of those women will have symptoms that are attributable to the fibroids. So while hysterectomy and myomectomy are still performed more frequently, UAE certainly has a place in the algorithm for management of those symptoms. Patients with adenomyosis can also have quite debilitating symptoms. They often have menorrhagia, pain, dysmenorrhea, and that can also impact fertility. For adenomyosis, the earlier research on UAE didn't show a huge clinical benefit. And I think that has had a durable imprint in some clinicians' minds. Um, but we've certainly more recently had much more encouraging results with improvement in patient symptoms in, a, in about 75 to 80 percent, which is sustained for at least the medium term. And, and there isn't a randomized control trial ongoing that's comparing UAE to hysterectomy for adenomyosis specifically. So we're certainly looking forward to those results, but it's certainly a part of our practice to to treat patients with fibroids or adenomyosis, along with the other indications you mentioned. Adenomyosis, as you said, doesn't have the volume of data yet that fibroids do, but the recent trials are certainly very promising. And compared to the surgical alternative, there are definitely some advantages, including shorter hospital stay and earlier return to usual activities. At my hospital, we are also currently running a pilot study on safety and efficacy for uterine artery embolization in endometriosis, which will be very interesting to see what the early results are as they come through. I see you've got quite a bit of media coverage. I was there for the beginning of that that trial, but I'm looking forward to seeing what the results are. Yeah, there's some very early media interest in it, perhaps even too early for what we perhaps would have liked, but but it's good to see that there's enthusiasm and, and support around and hopefully a, a good result too. Mm. Looking at the other indications here, do you typically treat uh, women with dysfunctional uterine bleeding as well? That's a good point. Dysfunctional uterine bleeding alone would be an uncommon indication in the absence of another diagnosis like fibroids or adenomyosis. Like really, those patients want to work them up thoroughly and make sure there's not another cause like an endocrine dysfunction or a malignancy. And then, of course, postpartum hemorrhage is like a huge topic in its own right. Um, but suffice to say, that yes, there is a role for IR in both the emergent unexpected postpartum hemorrhage and also for the preemptive management in the cases of abnormal placentation like placenta, accreta, percreta. Where I work, it's a major trauma centre, but it's also co-located with the large maternity hospital. So we do actually have a number of these cases per year where we would put up balloons preemptively. And then, of course, we always get the unexpected postpartum hemorrhages as well. It's thankfully uncommon, but it's certainly something I think inter every interventional radiologist needs to be able to treat whether they work at a maternity or hospital or not. Postpartum hemorrhage can present anywhere and it is a life-saving procedure at times. So the next part of the article is contraindications. So the first is contraindications to angiography, such as a severe anaphylactoid reaction to contrast media, uncorrectable coagulopathy or severe renal insufficiency, current pregnancy, active pelvic infection, connective tissue disease, and prior surgery with adhesions. In addition, many gynecological society guidelines do not recommend performing UAE on women who maintain a future desire for pregnancy. Exceptions to this may include women who have severe anemia or symptoms associated with fibroids, have failed conservative measures, and have contraindications to surgery or those who consent to UAE with an improved research protocol. However, recent studies have shown that fertility and miscarriage rates after uterine artery embolization for fibroids are likely similar to the age-matched general population. Yeah, so I suppose when I'm considering contraindications, I 
consider them like the general contraindications to angio, which are fairly standard, and then the specific contraindications, the procedure-specific contraindications. So connective tissue disease would really fall into the general relative contraindication category. Certainly, these are cases where you'd need to consider the much higher risk of vascular complications. And again, that's a discussion with the patients and the other involved clinicians. A significant infection anywhere really would make me defer an elective procedure. I wouldn't probably consider prior surgery with adhesions as a contraindication. No, that's not something I've incorporated in yeah. my practice or it's not something I've, I've heard of others doing. I'm just trying yeah. to think of where that may have come from. Potentially, it's theoretical risk of adhesions to arteries that may increase the risk of complications. I note that it's in brackets as relative. I'm not really sure where that's come from. We might edit the article post post hoc, but then the more procedure specific contraindications. Current pregnancy is obviously fairly self-explanatory. You don't want to go embolizing that. But um, even in women who are considering pregnancy, I do have a long and frank discussion with these patients, particularly those who are either not sure that they're finished their family or they are sure that fertility is important to them in the future. I tell them the concern is both non-target embolization leading to ovarian embolization an impaired ovarian reserve, and then the ischemic uh, or decreased blood supply to the endometrium and myometrium, which may lead to implantation failures. Now, there is low volume data still, low numbers in any of the well-designed studies, and a huge part of the problem is the follow-up of the pregnancy rates in these patients. It's very difficult to get good data for these patients. They're often older already, But there is some increasing evidence that fertility and miscarriage rates, as you mentioned, may be comparable to the age match general population. And of course, there are pros and cons to all the interventions. You know, we know that myomectomy is associated with increased risk of placenta accreta spectrum in a subsequent pregnancy. UAE has been associated with lower birth rates in some studies, even if the pregnancy and miscarriage rates are similar. So really a frank and open discussion of these patients where they have time to consider the options, come back and see you again. Uh, with any questions is is key to best management for each individual patient and their individual circumstances. It's important to know as well that some of the early trials that were done on UAE versus myomectomy, the UAE arm actually excluded women who desired future pregnancy. So any um, pregnancy that occurred in that arm of the trial was not a pregnancy that was planned at the time of randomization. Um, it may have been mm. an afterthought later, and um, there was even some commentary that the women who had the UAE and then subsequently became pregnant did so because they had such a good symptomatic improvement from the UAE that they felt then confident to have a pregnancy that they didn't feel confident to have before. Fortunately, some of the more recent trials and analyses in the last few years, as you say, have uh, shown that pregnancy and um, miscarriage rates are probably comparable to that of an age-matched general population. Um, but it is a tricky and nuanced discussion, particularly with all the factors involved. And yeah, that's also right. that the women have fibroids to start with, which is already a, a decrease fertility chance just purely for the fact that the fibroid is there. Exactly. And then whether it's treated by myomectomy or embolization, it's tricky to know which is the best direction to go in for that best future fertility outcome. On that topic, do you find in your practice, Heather, that you are treating a number of women who desire future pregnancy? I have treated patients who desired future pregnancy or certainly who think that fertility is important to them in the future. In those cases, 
often they don't want a hysterectomy. So this is a uterine sparing procedure. So at least that leaves that option open to them. In some of those cases, myomectomy isn't possible or isn't a suitable option for them. Uh, and in some cases, they've actually just preferred to go with the embolization route with all the caveats and uh, the lack of data that we've informed them of. Um, but that's their decision. And as long as you're upfront about it and that they understand all the pros and cons, I think that's um, absolutely reasonable to go ahead then. I'm not sure what your experience is, but I've found that there are patients who come occasionally with the misconception that uterine artery embolization is going to make them infertile and therefore they don't need contraception anymore. Is that something you've encountered? I always discuss pregnancy so that they know that there is the option of it. So I suppose it's covered in that debate, but I don't think I've specifically come across someone who thought they wouldn't need uh, birth control afterwards if that was important to them. Okay, so nuanced discussions are important, and we're going to move on now to the pre-procedural evaluation. So listed here in the article, we have a thorough gynecological history and examination covering the patient's symptoms and goals of treatment, pelvic ultrasound and MRI, up-to-date cervical screening, consider endometrial biopsy if there are concerning clinical or imaging features, relevant history of other medical problems and allergies. How does that compare to the typical evaluation you would undertake, Heather? Yeah, so um, at our institution, patients are usually referred by gynecologists. So they've either already had an MRI or luckily we have good access to MR. So if they haven't had a contrast MRI, I tend to arrange that and then see them at an outpatient clinic where we'll go through the history, imaging, pros and cons of UAE. I don't tend to do an endometrial biopsy, but again, they've usually been seen by a gynecologist prior to seeing me. So if that's a concern that may have been undertaken already. Mm. So MRI is great for several reasons. One, that you can get a bit better anatomical information about the fibroids, the location, the size, but also there are some red flag imaging features that may come up on an MRI that may put you a little bit more down the path of needing different workup and management. For example, if there's a fibroid that shows some sinister features that could change the approach. Would that be your experience in these workups? Yeah, exactly. I suppose, you know, solitary fibroids that you're concerned that maybe this isn't actually a fibroid or sometimes you will see some other pathology like endometrial pathology or other things. But it's pretty uncommon in fairness. The vast majority of the time, they're fairly straightforward imaging features and a lot of that will have come out in the history regardless. And if there is a concern, um, they will usually have had hysteroscopic evaluation if there's any concern for anything. But yeah, certainly MRI is great. Yeah, so in in the Australian public system, which I'm sure you'll be very familiar with, Medicare doesn't reimburse MRI for this indication. So we Hmm. use ultrasound as the pre-procedure and the post-procedure follow-up imaging modality. We look at red flag features such as fibroid doubling in size in six months or constitutional symptoms to assess the risk that a fibroid may not be a fibroid and, and could be something else. But I think MRI would be great if we could access it and hope that the government decides to fund it in the near future. I'm curious, Heather, what your thoughts are on performing endometrial biopsy routinely in patients before uterine fibroid embolization. I know there are some institutions that do that. Mine doesn't, unless there's a particular feature to lead us in that direction. I'm keen to hear what your thoughts are there. 
Yeah, we would be the same, um, you know, not unless there are other concerning features, clinical or imaging. The vast majority of our patients have come from a gynecologist in the first place. So if there are concerning features, usually the gynecologist will have investigated that thoroughly. But no, the vast majority, if they're straightforward, there's no, we don't do a routine endometrial biopsy for that, no. All right. So we now have the patient fully and thoroughly worked up and ready to come to the hospital on the day and have the procedure done. And we're preparing the trolley or the back table, as some people would call it. And we're going to get out all of the equipment that we need. And we'll see what the Radiopedia article suggests. So equipment, catheter selection. First sentence, any catheter suitable for contralateral and ipsilateral uterine artery cannulation. Suggestion number one, Roberts uterine catheter or RUC catheter, commonly used for selective catheter pelvic angiography. Number two, Cobra glide cath. Number three, right internal mammary catheter. And four, micro catheters may be used to cannulate smaller caliber arteries. What are your thoughts on that setup, Heather? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's whatever catheter you like. I tend to use a C2 glide and do a Waltman's loop for the ipsilateral side. I'll vary that based on the anatomy at times. I often use a microcatheter. If I can get, get away with a glide cath deep in a safe location in a, in a large uterine artery, I'll do that. But to be honest, I more often than not will take the microcatheter off the shelf. And are you talking a four French C2 glide or a five French C2 glide? I usually a four French if I can get away with it. Great. So a four French sheath then or a five French sheath? <laughs> I tend to use a five French sheath because I use a closure device at the end. <laughs> Great. That's almost exactly my approach as well. Maybe because you taught me some of these tips and tricks a few years ago, <laughs> but I would tend to use a five French sheath and a four French C2 glide catheter as the first option. And similarly, I often find that the C2 glide catheter, particularly with large fibroids and enlarged uterine arteries, the C2 glide catheter can get deep enough for a safe embolization without needing a microcatheter. But if it needs to be open, then it's also very helpful in getting deeper and, and getting that more stable position for the embolization. The RUC catheter is something that I do like using. It's not always available in my institution, unfortunately, but it is something that uh, I've seen and, and uh, used occasionally and, and has that really nice large reverse curve that comes and selects the contralateral and ipsilateral internal iliac arteries very nicely as it's intended to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've now got our selected catheter in the perfect position in the uterine artery, and we're going to select an embolic agent. So the embolic agents listed in the Radiopedia article are separated into a couple of categories. The first is fibroids and adenomyosis, PVA particles, typically 300 to 500 or 500 to 700 micrometers, or embospheres. And then category two, postpartum hemorrhage, we have gel foam slurry and N-butyl cyanacrylate. Or glue. Yeah, so for the fibroids and adenomyosis, I use um, microspheres. And in the thankfully less common scenario uh, of PPH, I tend to use gel foam. It does depend on the clinical scenario and the angiographic findings, particularly in, in PPH. I don't think there's any evidence for one size sphere or particle over another. In my practice, I tend to use five to seven spheres more often and then some seven to nines, seven to nine hundreds, obviously, if needs be after a few vials of the five to sevens. Is that the same as your approach or what's your go to size for particles? I came across 
an article when I was a fellow. It was from about 10 years ago, and it was by Tiago Billum in Portugal, where he compared in a randomized trial from memory three to 500s and 500 to 700 micrometer particles and found that the pain post-procedure was less with the five to 700 particles compared to three to 500, but there was mm. no significant difference in clinical improvement for heavy menstrual bleeding long-term. And so that sort of swayed me to using five to 700s more. Mm. But I have to say recently, I've moved back to preferring three to 500s, partly because I noted anecdotally in my own practice that there was a bit less size reduction in the fibroids at the six months or 12 months follow-up. If women present with pressure symptoms as one of their main features, I'll typically use the smaller particles for that reason. But if the presentation is purely for heavy menstrual bleeding, then I'll typically go for five to 700 particles. And I think this is an important question for the future in terms of getting more data to see uh, what the optimal size is. It might end up being that they're pretty equivalent, but it'd be interesting to see what the future data shows. Yeah, lots of data for us to accrue out there, I think. Yeah, and postpartum hemorrhage gel foam, I think is pretty straightforward and standard, allowing for that future recanalization and perfusion after it's resorbed, I think is the, the typical thought process there. Yeah, mm-hmm. All right, so moving on to the technique, there's a couple of different access options presented here. The first is femoral access. So the article states the contralateral internal iliac artery is selected. That's via a femoral approach. The uterine artery is a branch of its anterior division and has a distinctive radiographic appearance. Care is taken to avoid cervical and vaginal branches. This is usually avoided by selective catheterization of the uterine artery distal to the origin of these branches. The ipsilateral uterine artery is selected commonly by formation of a Waltman loop and subsequent embolization is performed. The embolization endpoint is diminished forward flow or near stasis of the main uterine artery trunk. I use stasis for kind of maybe three to five heartbeats. So when there's still contrast there at the five heartbeats, I think that's a, a fairly reasonable endpoint for these. How would you explain a Waltman loop? to the audience, Heather. So how do I explain that? I can show you but the Waltman loop. I think it was actually originally described for the left gastric artery, but I use it in almost every case. So um, if, for instance, if you access right going and select the left side first, and then you're coming back to the right side. So you want to get your catheters fold over on itself. You give it a, a bit of a push and twist. You form a reverse curve catheter with your forward curve catheter. And it just really nicely selects the ipsilateral side. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it almost forms a ruck catheter, uh, Robert's yes, uterine yeah, catheter exactly. from a from yeah. a standard C2 catheter where um, essentially you bend it upwards superiorly through the abdominal aorta and get it to then form a ruck catheter, that big reverse curve to go to the other side. The next part of the article states the ovarian arteries and inferior mesenteric artery may also be interrogated if fibroid vascularity is detected and these may also be embolized. How common has that been in your practice? Certainly not common. Like I said, the uterine artery is fairly 
standard, I think, in its in its position. But I'm sure there has been case reports of that, but not often in my practice. I mean, if I can't find the ovarian artery or the supply to the fibroids from one side or the other, I'll do an aortogram and you can usually see from there where the origin is. But it's not been my experience that there's been a huge amount of supply from the IMA. Do you routinely do an aortic DSA angiography or are you treating the uterine arteries only as a first approach? I do routinely do DSA from the uterine artery. A lot of people don't, but I still tend to. Just gives a nice roadmap from the start. Do you? From the aorta, you mean? Yeah, from the distal aorta, yeah. Okay, so you do routinely do a pump DSA run from the aorta. Yeah. I do know of others who do that. It's not the way I was taught as the first approach. It is an approach that I used overseas when I was in Singapore, as that was the standard approach there in that group. And it does have its advantage because the only time I've encountered a large ovarian artery supply component to a fibroid was there because we did the pump DSA. I guess I, I have two minds about it. I think it's great because you do pick up that additional supply that may be clinically important. But then also, I think the vast majority are supplied by the uterine artery. It's also benign pathology we're treating. So we're not looking to completely remove the blood supply it's more about decreasing it to reduce the symptoms yeah and i think you know if you are concerned for some reason like that would be very apparent to you during the procedure that you can't find one side or the other then it's very straightforward to do an aortogram at that point mm. so the the next section of the article talks about brachial or radial axis this is typically performed via the left upper limb in general this technique allows for easier uterine artery selection however it presents challenges regarding catheter length and there is a small risk of stroke as the catheter crosses the origin of the left vertebral artery what are your thoughts on brachial or radial axis Heather? Uh, yeah, I mean, I generally use femoral access for UAE. I, I do see the benefit of radial in some situations, but I'm not a radial zealot, to be honest. I definitely choose upper limb if you're trying to get around unfavorable anatomy, but it's pretty rare that it's necessary for anatomical reasons for UAE. Yeah, and I guess for the audience who may not be as familiar, the left upper limb is recommended here because then your catheter and or sheath only crosses the left vertebral artery origin as opposed to if you were to come from the right brachial or radial access sites you would be crossing all of the great vessels of the aortic arch yeah so there'd be theoretically a higher risk of stroke if you're coming from the right because you're crossing more supply to the brain that's right and many of the articles published on left upper limb access are in the context of neuro or cardiac interventions where i guess the arch needs to be crossed as part of the procedure. Whereas in uterine artery embolization, if you come from the groin, you don't have any instruments near the aortic arch at all. And so that removes that ever small risk of stroke, which I think in an elective population, at least in my mind, is a good approach. And so I typically mm. use femoral access as the first um, option. And if there is a reason that's not possible or particular patient factors, then radio would be the second option. All right. So periprocedural care is the next section. So a few dot points here. We have IV sedation is commonly given by the treating interventional radiologist or anesthetic team. Patients may be required to stay in hospital overnight to ensure adequate pain relief. Local anesthesia is given... And that may include a hypogastric nerve block and intra-arterial local anesthetic injection. 
IV fluids, antiemetics, and antibiotics. And the IV fluids, analgesia, antiemetics, and antibiotics need to be continued during the post-procedural period. How does that match up with your standard practice, Heather? Uh, yeah, so this is really important. The pre kind of peri and post procedural care, the angio itself is the easy bit. I do admit patients overnight for analgesia predominantly. We have admitting rights in the co-located maternity hospital and they all get regular paracetamol NSAIDs and we do give a PCA. I think if you're using a PCA, you have to counsel the patients appropriately about the PCA because often the nausea from the opiates will make them feel worse if they're susceptible. So have alternative analgesia and chart antiemetics. But having said that, for some patients, the PCA is, is excellent. I give periprocedural antibiotics. I don't usually give antibiotics afterwards unless there's a particularly high risk. I think peripheral nerve blocks can be used to a huge advantage in interventional radiology. Some operators are really big advocates of hypogastric nerve blocks. I do use peripheral nerve blocks in other uh, situations like for ablations and uh, PTCs. I use hepatic hyalur blocks, but I haven't started hypogastric nerve blocks yet. Do you use them, Matt? No, I, I don't typically do hypogastric nerve blocks in this setting. I think our standard regimen of IV sedation, antiemetic and anti-nausea followed by a PCA tends to provide adequate pain relief for the majority of patients. Mm-hmm. I do know that around the world there are centres that use hypogastric nerve blocks and there have been studies published showing a significant decrease in post-procedure opioid use and pain but it's not something I've incorporated as, I guess we see it as an additional step that we're not quite sure that it has reached the threshold of benefit outweighing risk. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is something that certainly keeping an eye on and we may incorporate in the future. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. And IA lignocaine again is, there's not a huge amount of data. Anecdotally, I think it can help. And there is a systematic review from 2021, which again showed a significant decrease in opiate use immediately post-procedure. I think you have to be careful using it because you you can get vasospasm and you want to give it at the end, but obviously not when you've just embolized to the point where everything else will reflux. There's certainly some benefit demonstrated in a few papers so far for intraarterial lignocaine and I guess it's a low sort of risk addition to provide given that the catheter is already in and lignocaine is often already on the table even. Uh, It's something Mm. that was routinely done in Singapore when I worked there, but it's not something that is routinely done in Melbourne as far as I know from the IRs that I work with. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think it's something that may have benefit in the future. Interestingly, I've heard of and seen a couple of operators using intraarterial dexamethasone. Is that something you've come across? Well, dexamethasone is, is certainly good for post-embolization syndrome. Actually, I haven't given it intraarterially, but but I think it can help in the severe post-embolization syndromes. Do you use it intraarterially? Not routinely, but I do know some operators who do. Mm-hmm. And are most of your cases, Heather, done with an anaesthetist present or is it done with sedation by your team? No, there's sedation by our team. It'd be very rare for us to have an anaesthetist, only in the very high-risk patients or if there's some some other medical comorbidity that means that we aren't um, comfortable sedating them. Uh, The vast majority would be sedated by us, yeah. All right, so the next area, it's a big area, complications. The first one listed here is angiography complications, including post-embolization syndrome and uterine artery dissection. Yeah, so... Angiography complications are all the standard ones, really. So access site complications, contrast allergy, vascular injury, etc. 
Post-embolization syndrome is particularly important for UAE for fibroids. It's really more, in my opinion, of a side effect than a complication. But regardless of the semantics, patients can get significant symptoms. So again, warning the patients of this during your initial outpatient consult and then managing it appropriately with analgesia, fluids, antiemetics is essential because you want to keep your patients as comfortable as possible. And also they need to know what's to be expected, you know, so they're not worried that something is, has gone wrong if they do have pain and nausea after the procedure. Yeah, I think it's really important, as you say, to set up the expectations and make sure that patients do understand it's uh, almost certain they'll get some pain after the procedure, if not some nausea as well. Mm-hmm. And I agree, it's very much a expected part of the post-procedural course rather than a complication per se. Mm-hmm. It's really important to have a good management plan around that. And I think that includes the nursing staff and the ward staff where the patient's cared for. Uterine artery dissection, I guess it is a complication, but it's not really particularly consequential. I think if you dissect before you've embolized it, the chances are that it's going to recanalize and then you'll just get flow again. I would probably consider that failed embolization really, um, Mm. because you're not getting that kind of distal ischemia that you want to get perhaps if you've completely embolized and then dissected, but that's unusual. All right. So the next complication we have here is sepsis. Sepsis is a rare but serious complication and can be difficult to differentiate from post-embolization syndrome. Yeah, that's right. Um, Sepsis is rare, whereas post-embolization syndrome is common and it can be difficult to differentiate, particularly for staff that might not be used to looking after patients post-embolization Usually post-embolization syndrome occurs quickly, whereas infection and sepsis tend to take a few days or even a few weeks to present. Endometritis or sepsis requiring antibiotics or surgery does occur, and the rate is about 1%, occasionally even requiring myomectomy or hysterectomy. So I do always include that in the initial consent. Uterine necrosis is another rare but major complication associated with the UAE, and, and if that's not aggressively treated, it can result in sepsis as well. So that's something you have to consider if there's pain worsening in a sick patient, then you have to think about something other than the usual post-embolization syndrome. Mm, Yeah, some really, really important points about the post-procedural care. As you say, it can be difficult to differentiate between that post-embolization syndrome and infection in the immediate post-operative course. In your practice, have you had patients who've represented after discharge with infection and what sort of the workup and management process that you go through for them? Yeah, absolutely. I think before their discharge, it's important to warn them that if they're feeling unwell, if they're hot and cold, if they have any symptoms, their first word call is the GP. But if they're more sick or if the GP is unavailable, that they're to come straight to hospital because they can be quite sick with this. Once it's managed quickly with IV antibiotics, then that's usually all they need. But Certainly, occasionally, there are patients who need surgical treatment for this, even hysterectomy, which is unfortunate. Obviously, the patients usually are are the ones that want to preserve their uterus, but it's something that's important to recognize. And obviously, they can be quite sick with it. So at the time, they they understand generally. And I think it's also really important here to emphasize that infection can occur quite late. It can occur several months later not only in that immediate week or two after the procedure, which I think is a different sort of way of thinking compared to surgical options, where, for example, if you've had a a myomectomy, typically Mm. the infection occurs a lot sooner 
and is pretty unlikely to occur months down the track. Whereas with embolization, because that tissue has become devascularized, it can then have a delayed infection from ascension of vaginal bacteria. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, that counseling, as you say, is really important. All right. Now, the next couple of complications go together. It's vaginal expulsion of fibroid tissue and fibroid fragment retention. Yes, this can happen particularly with the larger submucosal fibroids. And for instance, expulsion of fibroid tissue is not such a problem if patients are aware of it. It's an expected thing, really, for for some of the submucosal fibroids. Fragment retention is more of an issue, again, related to infectious complications, and that may require hysteroscopic resection. This doesn't occur for every submucosal fibroid. The vast majority do very well, even the larger ones. But in submucosal fibroids over six centimeters, it's something just to consider and discuss with the patients preemptively. Yeah, that's a great point. Certainly those submucosal ones, you do need to have that additional emphasis that this complication can occur and and fragment may need to be removed. But the majority, as you say, are going to do well. So the next complication is pregnancy outcomes are uncertain after uterine artery embolization. So I guess this is not so much a complication, but more a discussion than one that I guess we've already touched upon and discussed today. All right, so let's get into the outcomes. So for postpartum bleeding, so not fibroids here, we're talking about postpartum bleeding, the outcome is prevents the need for emergency hysterectomy and retains fertility after UAE for postpartum hemorrhage compared to hysterectomy. So for postpartum hemorrhage, technical success and complication rates are very good. Um, Repeat bleeding is seen, you know, variably, but about 5 to 10% of patients overall, probably less than that in more recent data. But overall, embolization is very safe and effective for postpartum and gynecological hemorrhage. I'm curious, I know it's a separate discussion altogether, but in Ireland for postpartum bleeding is interventional radiology commonly referred in the immersion yeah. or the routine elective setting with placenta accreta? Yeah, as I said, we're a co-located hospital with a large maternity unit. So we do get called for the unexpected ones for patients who've had vaginal deliveries and unexpectedly have a large postpartum hemorrhage. Obviously, the management is, you know, resuscitation, then balloon tamponade, and then we tend to be involved. And then for the not elective, but planned deliveries where there's placenta accreta spectrum pathology, then we tend to put up balloons first. And then they go to theatre with the balloons up and they have their section and then the balloons are inflated if needs be. And then at that stage, again, depending on the clinical situation, uh, it may be possible to embolize or they may need to um, have surgical management for that. But it's certainly a combined approach and we're very much involved with the gynecologist as we have a, a very good working relationship with them, which is great. So the next outcome we'll look at is fibroids. So the outcomes for fibroids, we have menorrhagia slash dysmenorrhea and metrorrhagia improve in 70 to 95% of cases. It's a shorter hospital stay and recovery period than hysterectomy and myomectomy. Hospital stay is rarely greater than 48 hours. Patients are often back to work within 10 days. There are no laparotomy related complications. The mean uterine volume reduction is 26 to 59%. Fibroid volume reduction is 40 to 75% after 6 to 12 months. The overall complication rate is approximately 10% considering minor complications and 1.5% considering major complications. There is a low rate of uterine infection as a complication, less than 2.5%, and a very low rate of infection requiring hysterectomy at less than 0.7%. In a study of follow-up two and four years after uterine artery embolization or myomectomy, 
women with symptomatic uterine fibroids were likely to have mildly better quality of life results with myomectomy than uterine artery embolization at two years, but there was equivalent outcome at four years. Yeah, so that's um, the FEM trial that you're referring to there, which I think we'd be remiss not to mention. Uh, it was a multicenter trial where patients were randomized to myomectomy or UAE for the management of symptomatic fibroids run through the UK. And we do have the four-year follow-up results, which showed that women assigned to myomectomy, although they reported very slightly higher quality of life than the UAE group, the difference was not statistically significant. So there was no statistical significant difference between the two groups for, for a follow-up at four years. There was no differences regarding menstrual bleeding and patients' rating of their operation, which was excellent in, in both groups. And the cumulative of pregnancy rate in this trial um, is also important to mention. The cumulative pregnancy rate was 15% in the UAE group and 6% in the myomectomy group. So again, small sample size. We can't rely too heavily on the pregnancy data, but it's certainly encouraging for pregnancy post-UAE. I've certainly found in my practice that some women... They are really interested in the fibroid volume measurements, and they certainly want to know the numbers at each point that we assess with ultrasound. But I guess it's also really important to focus on those clinical symptoms and see how much the heavy menstrual bleeding or the mass effect symptoms have improved, rather than just focusing on the number. Mm, I actually have stopped doing post-procedural imaging for these patients unless there's a reason to do it. So I really very much focus just on the symptomatic improvement in these patients now. All right. So the next outcome to look at is adenomyosis. We've discussed this already a little bit, but the article states in studies of follow-up after uterine artery embolization for adenomyosis, 74 to 82% of women with symptomatic adenomyosis had sustained improvement in quality of life scores and avoided hysterectomy. Yeah, so as we mentioned, there's less data for adenomyosis, but what we have would suggest a good improvement in the patient's symptoms. And it's certainly a part of our practice to, to see and treat these patients when they're symptomatic. All right. And the last section of the article is current recommendations. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology 2021 Practice Bulletin says that UAE is recommended as an interventional procedure for the treatment of uterine leiomyomas in patients who desire uterine preservation and are counseled about the limited available data on reproductive outcomes. The second point here is the NICE or NICE UK Uterine artery embolization for fibroids 2010 guideline states that UAE is efficacious for symptom relief in the short and medium term for a substantial proportion of patients. Yeah, so that's certainly reasonable. I mean, there's certainly a lot more hysterectomies and myomectomies performed in UAE, but what's important is that patients are counseled and referred appropriately, you know, that they have the option and that they are encouraged to see an interventional radiologist and actually talk about the procedure with us, talk about the pros and cons and make an informed decision about their own care. I think one of the great things about healthcare at the moment is that there are a number of options for patients and that they actually have a choice in a lot of cases, as to what they would like for their management of their own medical conditions. And it is a nice procedure to do. Patients are often very well afterwards and go home quite quickly and, and recover quite quickly. It's great for our patients to have this available. It doesn't take a huge amount of equipment or anything ancillary to what any interventional radiologist would have. So it's certainly a procedure that is accessible to a lot of interventional radiologists. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Heather. Thanks for having me on. It's been a great discussion. So I'm Matt, and we've been talking today with Heather Moriarty, interventional radiologist from Cork in Ireland. Thank you.
thank you to Matt and Heather for recording that readful discussion there. No time for any random non-radiology questions in there. Just put your lead on and focus on the topic. (laughs) (laughs) I love listening to interventional radiologists talk about catheters. It's sort of the same as listening to audiobooks when I fall asleep. I usually have a book or two that I either don't care about or that I know quite well that I just put on and I work my way through it extremely slowly because each each night I set it for 30 minutes, but I pass out within within two minutes, I reckon, of starting. <laughs> My wife does exactly that. She listens to the Harry Potter books on repeat every night to help her go to sleep. She loves sleeping with Stephen Fry is what I like to say. <laughs> oh, who doesn't? <laughs> Perhaps we could record like an A to Z of vascular catheters for her to listen to instead in the <laughs> night time. <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely work for me, but I can imagine some folk get all worked up if you start murmuring Betson Hanafi Wilson 100 centimeter <laughs> polyamide catheter, which accepts a hydrophilic O35 wire. <laughs> Might be too tempted to insert the sheath, you reckon? <laughs> oh, Dickerson. <laughs> Getting back to the topic of uterine artery embolization, Dickerson, the two things that struck me is firstly that it's another example of a happenstance sort of discovery. You know, you embolize it for one reason and you just happen to notice that the fibroids got better. But the other thing, and I don't want to make this sound pejorative at all or dismissive of the technique or the people who do it at all. That's not my intention. But I'm just struck by how, uh, what's the word, how crude medicine still is. And I don't mean just, you know, oh, we're just going to stick some stuff in this artery and block it off. But I mean, surgery, it's like, oh, we're just going to chop it out. Or even radiology, it's like, we're going to look at these pictures with our eyeballs and just, I reckon it looks like this disease. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like all of these techniques are still very much improvements or refinements on things that people were doing hundreds of years ago. You know, like four strong blokes would hold you down while a surgeon gutted you like a fish and rummaged around in you like a pig after truffles. And- <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. I know what you're saying here, and I'm, I'm glad you used the, the term strong blokes because one of the reasons I wanted to cover uterine artery embolization, specifically on the podcast, was actually as a bit of female health advocacy because at present, you know, it's a procedure that is often not offered Mm. or even mentioned to women, despite it being effective, less resource intensive, as we heard, than surgery. And generally, it's uterus and fertility preserving. So yes, I understand what you're saying. You know, blocking off uterine arteries sounds like a fairly crude approach, but in a very large number of patients, it probably is like our best approach and Mm. it's underused. So yeah, discussing UAE on the podcast for me is about helping to promote better treatment outcomes and options for women globally. Yeah, for sure. And access to techniques and evolving changes take time. There's that William Gibson quote, the science fiction author, something like the future's already here, but it's unevenly distributed, Hmm. meaning that the papers that you read about in big journals where they've got 17 magnets and all kinds of gadgetry doesn't really represent what most of the world has. And not only are there impediments to getting those techniques out there because of equipment, but in this case, it's not so much the equipment, it's just getting people to accept them and talk about them and offer them as treatment options. So yes, let's keep 
blocking off arteries and giving people the option. The other thing is it's the it's the gynecologists who traditionally manage these patients and they already have an operation. They've got myomectomy, yes. they've got hysterectomy that they yeah. can perform. And so they're not necessarily looking for uterine artery embolization as a new treatment, despite the fact that it is as effective and potentially easier and safer for, for the patients. You know, I see our role as, you know, obviously having an, an up-to-date article on the website, but also putting together this podcast as a way of trying to, to help push things along a little in the right direction. That's funny that you should mention hysterectomies and myomectomies, because in my teaching, I thought gynecologists only had two operations cutting the right ureter or tying off the left ureter. <laughs> Gosh, should we edit that bit out? <laughs> These are the editorial decisions that Murph needs to make each week in the background. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just before we finish up, speaking about advocacy for women's health, I actually wanted to take this opportunity to quickly acknowledge Matt Lukies, who we heard from in this episode, for his work as an advocate. He's someone who I really admire. He's always very passionate about helping people, helping patients, and recently even helping the radiology trainees here in Australia to rally against increased Mm. training fees and fellowship fees that the college have been introducing. He's someone who's really not afraid to, to speak up for people. And so Matt, hopefully you're listening. I want to thank you for, for all that you do. And thanks for also recording this podcast for us. Absolutely. It's uh, too easy for everyone just to keep their head down and not speak up when things aren't right. So well done, Matt. Well done, Matt. All right, Gayla, we better wrap this episode up. How can people get in contact with us? Well, we're at Radiopedia on X and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, also email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and or feedback. Yes. So should something radiological be named after Gaylard, perhaps? <laughs> Obviously, I have the Dixon sequence in MRI, which is uh, very humbling yes. uh, that it's named after me. But should there be something for Frank as well, you know, other than Frank Puss, of course? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that, Dixon. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. In doing so, you'll be helping us to give free course and conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries. And and what else can people do to help us out, Frank? And you can also help out by leaving us a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Perfect. And we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay right, everyone. Stay right. Even the gynecologists out there, we still love you. (laughs) Stay (laughs) right.